I, I went through, I don't know how many titles for this uh, first section, uh, and I went through, I don't know how many revisions over the last few weeks of, okay, so how far do I, how far should I go in the very first message? Should I go three verses? Should I go seven? What should I do? Um, and I went through all sorts of potential titles. Uh, does anybody remember um, a song called You Gotta Have Faith? Um, it has nothing to do with the Bible, just so you know. Um, he says faith a whole lot of times, but it has nothing to do with the Bible, so I'm not recommending that you listen to it. But it always, it always I think about this because um, everybody thinks of something, uh, of faith as something different. Um, faith is defined in so many silly ways. Um, and faith is defined in so many silly ways. And for a Christian... We need to make sure that we are looking at faith the way the Bible describes faith, right? Because we get our definitions uh, from a great many sources. Um, If you ever, I get distracted by the meaning of words and by the the evolution of a meaning of a word and how a word changes over time. I get super distracted. So I probably spend like twice as long studying as I need to because I just get distracted by these words and where this word come from and what does it mean? Um... But it does matter what the word faith means. Uh, The dictionary definition matters. What do the Bible say about it matters. And then do we comprehend it and apply it? That really, really matters. Um, But I want us to get our first understanding for why faith matters, why defining it properly matters from the immediate context in the letter uh, to to the Hebrews. Because He just said in the previous chapter, chapter 10, in a little while he, and he's referring to Jesus, he who is coming is coming soon and he's not going to delay. But the righteous one, God speaking here, my righteous one, will live by faith. And I don't take any pleasure in the one who shrinks back, shrinks back from faith. So what he means by faith here matters for two really critical reasons. Um... Uh, I'll go ahead and skip past this. I already gave you that. One, what does it mean to live by faith? Because he says the righteous one will live by faith. And two, how do we define faith in that context, right? What does it mean to live by it? But then what does he mean by the word anyway? Um, Let's have a word of prayer um, before we get into the teaching today. Because one, we... uh, we need to make sure that we pay attention first and primarily to the Word of God. Uh, Two, we are not automatically privy to everything, to understanding everything that God presents in His Word. God gives a variety of gifts and understanding to a variety of people. From like the greatest teachers that we would talk about in Christianity down to like the guy who explained something to you, you know, after church, who's not a teacher, not a pastor, you know, uh, he's just an ordinary follower of Jesus, right? So we have all sorts of different gifts and abilities. Um, and so, so we want to understand, and the only one who can give understanding is God, right? So let's, let's have a word of prayer and ask God to help us to have understanding in this passage today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. That your word is true independent of what anybody thinks about it independent of what anybody, whatever accusations people make about it, claims people make about it, uh, your word is true. 
Father, uh, as followers of Jesus, we agree that your word is true. We agree that we need to be sanctified by that truth. But we also understand that at any given time, uh, we might be tempted to believe in a different truth, to put our faith in a different piece of information, uh, to, to put our faith in another source of information. Father, help us to rightly understand your truth. Today, Father, help me to speak clearly. There's so much information about faith. I'm not even going to scratch the surface probably. Uh, if we're talking about all of what your word teaches about faith. But I want us to have an understanding of what the author of Hebrews is talking about faith right here in this passage. So God, will you please be with us and help us to learn that today. And help us not just to learn a piece of information, but to take it in, to meditate on it, to grow and profit by it, and that we would bring you more glory as a result of our understanding. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for giving us faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, I like to start off with dictionary definitions because words do have meanings. Um, and English has a meaning. We, you know, we have translators who work tirelessly to make sure that the Bible is understandable in whatever language a person uh, happens to speak, right? Um, wherever, whatever country it is, whatever nationality the people are, uh, translators are working all the time. I always find it fascinating to find out how many translations of the Bible are actually going. Uh, last time I checked, there was something like 1,500 different languages that the Bible exists in from Genesis to Revelation. 1,500. That's complete Bible. There's a further more than 11 or 1,200 where they have a new, complete New Testament and they're working on the Old Testament. And then there's a further 500 and some odd languages where work has been done in at least one of the Gospels and some of the letters, and they're working to finish the New Testament. That's incredible. 4,000 people, uh, 4, 000, uh, people from 4,000 different languages can read the Bible, can read at least the Gospel in their own language. That's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful thing. So language is important. Words having meanings is important. We don't just laugh, ha, 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 dictionary, let's move on. But we need to understand what does the word mean, and then what does God mean when he uses it? Those two things together will help us to better understand. So there's several different types of uh, definitions, uh, aspects of the definition of the word faith. Uh, one has to do with allegiance. And the, the example they give here is a person lost faith in the company's president. Right? They no longer believe in that person as somebody they can follow. Um, or fidelity to one's promises. Um, integrity would be another way to put this. Or doing what you say would be a simple way of saying this. Then there's sincerity of intentions, like a person acts in good faith. Um, and then there's also belief and trust and loyalty to God in a religious aspect. Right? And here they cite belief in the traditional doctrines of a religion, um, whatever that religion happens to be. Uh, firm belief in something for which there is no proof. And here's where I think the world uses this word way too much, and we sometimes in the church use it, and we shouldn't. You should, like, slap your mouth if you say that. Don't do it. Clinging to faith that her son, that her missing son, would one day return. This is a faith for which she has no, in the, you know, in the, in the context of this hypothetical, she has no reason to believe that it will happen. She just hopes against hope that it will. We have hope in all situations, but we don't have hope in all situations that whatever we want is going to happen. Uh, another, another way of looking at this would be something that's believed 
um, with a strong conviction. Again, it goes right back to the idea of religion. And then to believe or trust is the base of this verb. To put it into action is to believe or to trust, right? And we, we believe or we trust in a variety of different things. But is that what the author of Hebrews is talking about primarily? You know, um, is it loyalty? Is it fidelity, integrity? Is it sincerity of intentions? Is it intellectual assent to a specific religious doctrine or a group of doctrines? Is it just a submissive trust? Is it blind faith? Is it careless, foolish, baseless, informationless faith? Well, no, it's not. Is it just this sort of silly, foolish hope that everything will turn out all right in the end? No, not. Um, I found this very helpful. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, listened to R.C. Sproul. Um, he, I mean, he's passed away now, but he's great... Uh, wealth of information online, and he did this really neat um, kind of study about what is faith. It's like 28, 29 minutes, something like that. It's very, very short, uh, very basic. He doesn't go into great, great detail, but he talks about a few things that were very helpful, and this is from my notes after listening to to him speak on this, Um, and he's referring back to the Reformers, and what did the Reformers think about faith? What was was the bare bones of faith that they thought uh, regarding biblical teaching? One is that it's centered on information, right? We saw this even in the dictionary definition, that to believe or trust in something requires that there be something you believe in or trust, right? Whether it's a person or whether it's a specific set of information, there, there's content to that faith, you know? Um, so, so one part of that is the information or the content or the teaching that a person would say they trust in. The second part would be intellectual assent. Because uh, you can actually have a room full of people and they're all talking about one specific thing that's to be believed, one piece of information, and many of them might not actually agree with that, right? Um, you know, you, you know this simply by going around Hamtramck and talking through the gospel with somebody. People will disagree with you on every point that they don't agree with. They, have, they are not in intellectual assent with what you've just said. And thirdly, uh, there's a personal trust involved. Uh, This involves the will, it involves the heart, the affection, and it will always, it will always require the consummation of action. You'll always have to put it into effect in order for it to be real. This is what James says, you know, faith without works is dead. Because if you say you believe something but you don't act on it, your faith has a major fault. You only believe it up until the point where it contradicts something else you want more. That's not faith right? That's just thinking something's true when it's convenient. So biblical faith involves information to be believed. It involves the intellectual assent, the mind agreeing that this thing is true. And then it requires something of an individual personal trust. You actually have to put that into practice and follow it. I I found that very helpful. Uh, His whole teaching was helpful, so if you want, I'll send you a link. Uh, Great teaching. Now let's get to the passage, right? Because God's word informs what faith is. And these first three words of this, you know, depending on what translation you're reading, now faith is. Keep that in mind. You're believing, you're trusting in information. You're putting it into practice. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does God have to say about this? Faith is. I don't think he's trying to give us a dictionary definition either. I think he's trying to give us what Jay calls a working definition, I think. What I like to refer to as a working definition, probably just got it from him, but the idea of what do I need to know about this topic so that I can live my life 
keeping with it, right? So when I live my life, I'm living by this truth. What's the working definition? Um, So faith is, and I think that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to give this group of people because he wants them to persevere. He doesn't want them to fall away like others have. He doesn't want to give up and go back to Judaism or worse, give up on believing in God at all. He wants them to continue on in the faith, to persevere in what they've said they believe. So I broke this up because I, I know, I'm, re- I'm reading out of an NIV. That's what I have up on the, on the board. Um, but I know that some of you might have an ESV or an NASV. And if you do, you're going to find a variation of either confidence or assurance in the first phrase, confidence or assurance in what we hope for. And in the second phrase, you'll find assurance uh, about what we don't see. Uh, there may be another word too, but it's a synonym of, a, of assurance, very, very similar. But if you're reading from uh, Holman Christian Standard, Standard uh, New Living Translation, NKJV or KJV, then you probably have something like this, either substance or reality uh, in the first clause, the substance of what is hoped for instead of the confidence in what is hoped for. Um, and then in the second part, you'll have proof or evidence of what is not seen or what is unseen. Now, why is the difference here? Um, there's a lot of cases, and we've talked about it in Hebrews before, where sometimes you have uh, a minor difference between um, one manuscript and another, right? They'll use synonyms in Greek, but it really means the same thing. Or there might be a significant difference of, uh, in, in, in some verse or another, but that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is the fact that the underlying Greek word, and I'm not going to go into it, we'll talk about it later if you want to, but the underlying word has several different uses. You know how we use the same English word in a variety of situations, and context defines what we mean by the word? Same thing exists in every other language that I've ever heard of. Greek is one of them. There's a range of ways you can use it. And this underlying word, um, at that time, because words change in their meaning over time, but at that time it had two main words, uh, two main uses. One was more physical or literal, and one was more metaphorical. And that's the definitions that they give us here. This is why I always tell people, if you have a, a question about what a word means in the Bible, read another translation of it. Because you read, the more English translations you read, the more full of an understanding of the underlying meaning you're going to get, Right? And so you have the substance of what is hoped for, because in one sense, the word underlying here means the representative reality or the substance that, 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 that brings two things uh, together. It's the word that eventually comes to describe the Trinity, okay? Uh, the hypostatic union, or however you're supposed to pronounce that, I don't know, um, has as its base this underlying Greek word. And it's two words, actually, that are put together in a contraction to mean uh, something like a title deed or a warranty or a guarantee. So that's why he says it's the substance, right? There's a promise that has been made, and you have the substance that that promise will be fulfilled. You're hoping, as a Christian, that the promises of God are all going to be fulfilled. And you have his word as a guarantee. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. So if you have a promise of God, If you have a a warranty or a guarantee or a title or there's a a contract, a covenant that's been made, and if you've been paying attention in Hebrews, there's a new covenant that's been made, right? And God's the one who makes the covenant. And so those things that we hope for in the covenant, we have 
the substance of it right now. We have his word in writing. We have his guarantee. And so if you have a guarantee, let me just ask you a question. If you have a guarantee, if God of the universe has written you and made a promise to you, or made a promise that's dependent on another thing, and you've agreed with that other thing, do you have a guarantee that God's going to keep his word? Yes, you do. And then, therefore, can you have the metaphorical meaning of this word, confidence? Yes, you can. We have confidence because God said it. The substance of his promise, we have right here, his word. That is what the author of Hebrews is getting at when he says this. So these two parallel phrases, they both tell you that you have every reason for confidence to believe that what God has said he will do, specifically in line with what he's been saying, is that he's going to forgive you from your sins. He's going to put your sin as far as the east is from the west. He's going to make you perfect. He is making you perfect. He's making you holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is what the author is saying you can depend on. So when he says, you can have confidence in this, he's saying both that you have the substance of that promise, God's word, and you can, have, you can believe that promise or you can have confidence. So he uses both of these. What's so cool is that the author uses another word for confidence routinely through the book of Hebrews. He chose this one here. He uses another word for substance elsewhere, but he chooses this one, which means both substance and confidence. I think it's a beautiful thing that he does it here because he wants us to understand that we have every bit of confidence because God's word is as good as done. God has made a promise. It will happen. Okay? So the second word, a little bit simpler, uh, assurance or proof or evidence you'll have. Again, it's a legal term, and what it really refers to is an inner conviction. He's not just saying you have enough information to make a good rational choice. Further than that, you have the inner conviction. So God has given you every reason to believe in his word, and he has convicted you individually that it is true. Now, your inner conviction may not convince somebody else, but you have inner conviction from God himself. And elsewhere in scripture, we see that it's the Holy Spirit who gives us this conviction. If you look in John, that's one of the jobs that the Holy Spirit fulfills, is that he convicts the world regarding sin. He convicts the world regarding the word of God, regarding righteousness. So, so we have confidence because God's promise is as good as done, and we have uh, conviction, we have the inner, the personal conviction that what God has said is true. Even though what we hope for, right, which is the approval of God at the day of judgment, what we hope for is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the reward that's been prepared for you by my Father. What we hope for is guaranteed because God said it, and we have the inner conviction of faith so that we can follow, right? Because it doesn't stop with just understanding and believing even and trusting personally. It moves on to the consummation of action. So as he's telling these people, like, you need to persevere. You need to keep living, you need, uh, living the faith. You need to keep obeying God. You need to keep working toward holiness. 
working on your sanctification. In order for them to understand that, faith has to be very clear. Right? They have to have faith. Got to have faith. You don't have to listen to the song, but you have to have faith. You can have confidence that what God has said is true because he's convicted you personally that it is and because God never lies. Now, let's move on to the second part of that, the thing that is hoped for and the thing is not seen. In the beginning, I showed you a definition where people hope against hope that something is true and it's sort of nebulous and undefined and they just have a, you know, a wishy good feeling that everything's going to turn out in the end. But, you know, we know that's not true. Lots of things don't turn out well in the end. Tons of things don't about life in general. But is that really what we base our hope on? Let me just tell you, if your hope is in a better tomorrow that is undefined and you just think it's going to be a better, happy, smiling sort of dream about whatever tomorrow is going to be, your hope is misplaced. Now, things could get better tomorrow. But as a Christian, you could lose somebody very close to you. You could lose your job. You could lose your ability to speak. You could lose any kind of health uh, benefits that you're enjoying right now. Um, not talking about insurance. I mean like whatever the, the, the normal benefit, like the walking around, you have uh, speech. You have um, uh, the ability to think clearly and rationally. All of those things are up for grabs. Anything that you have today might be gone tomorrow. Except what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. That doesn't change. Unfading, unspoiling, never-ending. So, what is hope for, again, we need to define it, right? We need to define it by what God has said. The fact that it's not seen is very simple. Paul says, who hopes for what he sees already? The hope that we have in Christ is that one day we will be with him. And so, I, I, I'm going, getting ahead of my slide, so I'm going to go back. Um, but, you have every reason to be confident, right? In what we hope for and what we don't see. And I, I want to give you a big picture of this. We've talked about what it says in Hebrews that, you know, I'm just read this real quick for you. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 12. When this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. He finished the work. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. We're waiting in this world for what God has promised to come true, to come true. We're waiting for that thing to happen. And then he says in verse 14, by one sacrifice, he, Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's our hope, that we're being made holy, right? We talked about that, but I want to talk about it in a general way too. Um, the hope of our Christian life is the glory of God. Colossians 1, 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does he mean by that? I think Romans helps us to understand it. Um, Romans 5, he says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have ex uh, gained access by faith, into this grace, by believing, by trusting in what God has said, into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Again, what does glory mean? Well, glory means a couple of things. Go back to Romans chapter 3. 
Everybody's sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has failed to meet the expectations of God in reflecting his glory. When we talk about the glory of God, we can talk again about a, a number of different things, but specifically here in reference to the glory of man, as we're saying all the perfection of his communicable attributes, his righteousness, his love, his justice, all of those things about God that we share in, but imperfectly, that's what, you talk about, what's that we're talking about when we talk about glory. And so we talk about the glory of man, we're talking about final approval and acceptance by God because one reflects truly and properly the glory of God. And it's as a result of that person's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews has been telling us. That by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are made holy and we are being made holy. God considers the outcome and he says, it's done. And we live while it's still being worked out, trusting by faith that it will be. Glory for people is final approval by God. Now, he's going to even talk about the approval by God in the next verse when he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. Now, who does he have in mind here? Well, I just listed the names from the chapter 11. Um, there are obviously more. Uh, when he says the the these uh, the, the saints, he's talking about all the Old Testament people who are commended by Scripture as having pleased God. Now, why does he say all of these, why does he give all these examples? Well, the most logical reason why he gives all these examples is because if one of the temptations of these early Jewish believers was to go back to Judaism, and I would argue that it is simply by the content of the message where he's all the time showing the superiority of the realities in Christ against the superiority of those realities, um, of those shadows toward the reality uh, from the Old Testament, right? Um, the temple and the tabernacle are absolutely pointless if there is no heavenly tabernacle. A sacrifice of an animal is useless if there was not one sacrifice that could truly make you right with God, right? And so... All of these Old Testament people, they did not relate to God by the type of Judaism that the contemporaries of these Hebrew believers would have, would have, would have had. If you read through the Gospels and you see the attitude of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that was the predominant view of how you got right with God, by organizing your life and making yourself bright, white, and clean on the outside. Conforming to all the rules and regulations so that nobody could say, oh, something's wrong with him. But Jesus said, no, 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 it's the heart. The thing that defiles you is what comes out of your heart, sin. It doesn't matter how well you clean up the outside. If the inside is corruption and rebellion, then the outside cleanliness doesn't matter at all. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people, and the predominant thought of the people around them in Judaism is this is how you're righteous, by conforming to every single standard. And the author of Hebrews says, no, it's your underlying trust in the word of God real and genuine faith that when it works out in you will be obedience and the righteousness of God. You're starting in the wrong place. You're starting with obedience. You can't start there because you have corrupt and wicked hearts. And so what he does is he says, all of these guys live by faith. In other words, he preaches against dispensationalism. That's a joke, but, but sort of he does. So 
It's not about used to be God liked you on the base of your righteousness. Now he likes you on the basis of your faith. No, put that out of your mind. Faith undergirds righteousness. Without faith, he says in a few minutes, it's impossible to please God because you've got to trust that he exists and that he's going to reward those who actually seek him and try to obey him. Faith comes first. Faith is the priority. Faith is the foundation. If you, if you check out that R.C. Sproul video, he makes this really cool illustration where he goes, you know, we apprehend things in a couple of different ways. You have people who apprehend truth by reason. They work it out in their mind. They try to think through it logically. You have other people who think that the best way to learn is by observation. He points out that the scientific method is both. It's employing both your observation, what you can touch, taste, see, feel, all those sort of things, what you can apprehend with your senses, and then what you can use in your reason uh, to, to, to make logical conclusions based on that. That's how the scientific method works. Well, he adds to that foundation something else. He adds faith. Why does he add faith? The world says, well, you have your faith, but I have my intellect. Since when? You won't find it anywhere in here where God says, shut down your intellect and only believe without any reasons. God doesn't say that at all. Nowhere. He says, he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. So, and then even, even the author of Hebrews, he says, earlier, I think chapter six, you've been enlightened. You've received the light of truth. And so how does this play out, right? How does faith add to um, our reason and our, what we can observe? Well, Again, I've said it all, I've said it the whole time, I think, hopefully clearly, I'll say it again. But the things, the information that we take in, the information that has to be believed is the word of God. And so the information that we take in is from a credible source, God. Every word that God says you can depend on. So you take in things that you observe, just in your life, you touch, taste, see, hear. And then you also use the rational mind that God has given you to try to put it together in some sort of logical fashion. But at the same time, you recognize that because of sin, you don't reason perfectly. There's something wrong with your logic. It's broken. That's why when you think through a problem and you go to the rational solution and it doesn't work out, that's why it doesn't work out. Because you have a flawed mind. You have a flawed reason. Sometimes things don't work out because our reason is imperfect. Our logic is imperfect. And sometimes, for a variety of different reasons, our senses lie to us. What we observe cannot be trusted. Um, example of this would be, think about, I think about this example. I think about my son whenever we were in Egypt and he had this high fever and he was completely disoriented. He had senses and his senses were telling him things, but those things were wrong. The high fever was messing up the way his brain processed information and put it out again. A variety of different reasons why this would happen. Drugs and alcohol, mental illness, injury, all sorts of reasons why you can't process information correctly. And so, rather than falling back on your own intellect, faith requires that you fall back on God's word. That that's the actual foundation 
all of the, the information we take in and we say we believe, and all the ways we put it together by reason and logic, are all informed by God's word. An objective standard of God's word. You can say it's subjective, but subjective to God, right? Based on what he says is right. So, this is where we look at verse 3, right? By faith we understand. Remember, there's information that we take in, and then we intellectually agree with it. We understand what? That the universe was formed at God's command. God spoke and things came into existence. This is a look back at uh, Genesis chapter 1, right? Um, The universe was formed at God's command. God said, let there be, and there was. And then he says, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, this is really important that we look at this. Because we say sometimes that truth is based on what we can observe, right? I know what happened, I saw. I know what happened, I heard. Sometimes we say that information is true because it makes sense. Now, I know it is because this and this and this mean this. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I know because my reason tells me so. This is really, really cool. I I absolutely love this. He says God's word actually undergirds all of that. What you can see and observe, you can only see and observe because God made it out of what was not visible. In other words, God didn't take a bunch of building blocks. God didn't find a bunch of loose atoms and molecules and kind of put them together. God made the molecules. He designed the system. So the reality that you observe, it only exists because God speaks it into existence. And earlier in Hebrews, he says, and the Son, Jesus, the Word, upholds it by the Word of His power. It all exists because He says so. So the very basis of what we can know, even under, even before our observation, is that God created everything we observe. And put that again with our reason. The only reason you can reason, the only reason you can reason, is could God created you with the ability to reason. And he did that by speaking. His word undergirds your ability to reason. His word undergirds or, or props up the things that you observe. So where's, where's faith? Um, where it's, where's its proper place? And when I say that, I'm going back to the definition I've already given you, believing and trusting in God's word. That what he says is true, and what he says he'll do, he will. So faith in God's word undergirds observation and rationalization. It undergirds your senses, and it undergirds your ability to put it together in any kind of logical way. It comes first. What is faith then? Faith is believing that what God has revealed in his word is absolutely and reliably true. Everything that he says. Even when it bumps up against your observation. Even when it challenges some preconceived notion that you have about God or about yourself. Simple illustration of this is I was walking through the gospel with somebody once, like, what does the gospel mean? And And he said, oh, no, no, I don't believe in judgment. I don't believe in a final judgment. I don't believe God would judge people. 
that doesn't enter into the equation. It doesn't matter whether you think God's going to judge people or not. Why? Because the Bible says he's going to judge people in a number of different places. So, in that situation, that individual needs to check their own personal information, whatever they've accepted is true, against what the Word of God says is true. So, faith is believing what God has revealed in His Word is absolutely and reliable truth, regardless of how you feel about it, regardless about what the world says about it. And all these examples that he's going to give us in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 11, they all had to do that. They had to put their faith in what God had said to them, however much or little it was. They had to put it into practice and take action because the world in which they lived found reason that their faith wasn't good enough. They found reason to deny what God said in his word. They weren't on the same wavelength. So like Noah's trying to walk down a crowded hallway, as it were, and everybody else is walking the other direction, but he's got to keep walking. He's got to drag his seven family members with him. And there's a sense in which we all have to do that in this world. Faith is believing what God has revealed in his word and saying it's absolutely true. And then what is, it meant, what is meant by living by faith? Um, I always try to want to go with a simple definition, but I, it never works out that way, so please just bear with me. Living by faith is making conscious daily decisions based primarily, firstly, on what God has revealed in his word rather than on feelings or the consensus of the unbelieving world in which we live. So when we talk about blind faith, as Christians, it's okay to use the word blind faith. But what we mean is by that, that we trust in all of what God says in his word, even when what we see or what we feel doesn't agree. That's the sense in which it's blind. It's because we can't see fully, and we can't see what God has already promised as happened in our lives, right? And that's another point that he's going to point out with all these different guys. And so we're going to circle back to these ideas as we look at the heroes of the faith or the hall of famers when it comes to faith or however else your Bible may, may, may call chapter 11 or however you've heard it preached in the past. Faith is simply this, believing God in his word. Taking revelation and putting it first, the divine revelation of God in his word, and believing that first, basing your life on it. And living by it is basing your decisions on it. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do, and I think what any believing friend of yours is going to try to do for you, and I hope and I pray that that's, that's who the believers are in your life, that that's who we are for each other as a church, that we're going to encourage each other in that. And just remind each other, keep believing what God has said. Keep making decisions based on what God says in his word. So, um, I haven't scratched the surface of faith. I would love to be able to say, hey, in 30 minutes or 40 minutes, um, I have explained everything you need to know about faith. I haven't. Listen to a lot of people on this. Listen to R.C. Sproul. Listen to Jay. Listen to this. Read the Bible. Pray. Listen to other good teachers. Think on faith. Think on what this chapter tells us about faith. And as we explore in the coming weeks these heroes of faith, examine your life against theirs and the decisions they made versus the decisions you make and respond appropriately, believing that God will do for you in Jesus Christ 
what he says he'll do. I'm going to close. I'm going to read from the New City Catechism. Um, I particularly like it. This is the answer to the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word. Trusting in him. And also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in what God's revealed about salvation in Jesus Christ. That he died for sinners. That his death can count for the death that sinners owe. And that through faith in him, not only are our sins forgiven, but we're adopted into the family of God. We're given a new heart that's patterned after his own heart and that will grow in righteousness and holiness. That's faith in Jesus Christ. So, let's pray, and then we're going to sing a song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that we can depend on you, even over and above what we see in the world. If we were to make an assessment of Christianity based on what the world thinks, we would probably refuse it. But if we look at the world through what your word says, then we can understand it. Father, thank you so much that your word is reliable, that your word is true, that your word illuminates us. Thank you that even though we continue to struggle on a day-to-day basis with sin, even doubt, that as we continue, as we persevere in the faith, as we continually check our thoughts and our feelings and what we see on the news against your word, that we're growing in faith and that we will have what we hope for. We're going to be received by you at the end and we're going to look like uh, Jesus Christ. We're going to be beautiful. We're going to be holy. We're going to be righteous and we're going to be free from accusation. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done and the faith that you have given to us to believe. Father, I just pray that you would continue to convict us over and over and over again and that you'd help us to encourage each other with these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing.